Hello and welcome to Psychic Teachers. I'm your host, Deb Bowen. And I'm Samantha Fay. And we are just so happy that you have joined us this week as Samantha and I talk about a topic we talked about before, but I think you'll uh, like some new information we're going to share with you today and uh, some different perspectives on the topic of near-death experiences. So sit back and enjoy this hour with us. If you are a regular listener to our podcast, you know that before we get into our topic each week, we share with you a crystal of the week and an animal of the week. We'll do that with Samantha, starting with the crystal of the week, if you would, please, dear. Yes, our crystal of the week is a listener suggestion. It is celestite, which is C-E-L-E-S-T-I-T-E. It's a beautiful sky blue color. It usually you will get it in a geode type pattern formation, but you can also find it in a tumbled form. It's called the Stone of the Angels. It helps you to connect and hear the angelic realm in a more clear and precise manner. It helps to awaken the throat chakra. It strengthens clairaudience, helping you to hear inner guidance and messages more clearly. It's also a stone of peace. It brings an energy of tranquility into your energy. It helps to align your energy with the universal energies, bringing a feeling of inner calm. It's also a wonderful stone to give as a gift because it brings an energy of peace, love, and respect to that relationship. And it's considered a strongly healing stone, helping you to wash away the pain of any physical or emotional issue that you are dealing with on a spiritual level. So that is Celestite. Beautiful stone. I have a lovely piece that our great friend Dale gave me, and and it is really a wonderful uh, meditation and connection stone to connect with uh, information from your guides, particularly if you are in clear audience as I am. So so thank you for that. So that's beautiful. Yes. Who's our animal of the week? Our animal person this week is frog. And I'm choosing frog for a couple of, of reasons. One, somebody asked me to talk about frog. And two, I had this little tree frog on uh, the tablecloth on my uh, table on my deck recently. And I just loved him. I thought he was so cute. I named him Jeremiah. I know he wasn't a bullfrog, but I named him Jeremiah anyway. <laughs> and I took a picture of him, and I showed the picture to a friend of mine who flipped out. That's her one phobia, are tree frogs. Who knew? She's terrified wow. of them. I certainly did not mean to frighten her. I, I just thought I was sharing a cute picture of Jeremiah with her, but she did not think so. And so, of course, that and coupled with and there are tadpoles everywhere and frogs everywhere. It's the time of the year. Uh, all of those things combined to make me want to talk about frog medicine um, this week. And, you know, last week, Samantha, I talked about osprey and how ospreys connect us to water and air, to the elements of water and air. Well, frogs connect us to the elements of water and earth. And I think that's an important thing to think about when we connect to the energy of, of various four-legged swimming, crawling, etc. folks, is is what elements are they connected to and, and how do they relate to us in that way. Frog energy has often been um, connected to uh, magic 
elemental magic, both in North and South America. Uh, they're used in a lot of shamanic traditions, their medicine is. Um, so they are also connected to lunar energy. I mean, how many nights have you heard frogs croaking in the night? Uh, they are also about fertility and abundance um, because, you know, they can be bright abundant. Really, they, they can be. So they teach us to um, also to be able to live in more than one reality. And by that, I mean to really multitask in the different aspects of the world in which we live, at work, at home, in spirit, in mind, and body. Uh, they They teach us that we have the power to change. Frog energy is about changing from eggs to tadpoles to to full-grown beings. So they teach us that we too can um, move beyond the mundane. Huh? Transform. Yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. I could go on and on and on. But but the frogs really are about uh, about transformative energy and about being able to live in more than one reality at one time. So there you go. I love that. Frogs also remind me not to judge a book by its cover because I always think about the frog that turns into the prince. Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. I hadn't thought about that's that. But yes, magical that. transformation right there. It certainly is. There you go. There's that magic of frogs. So there you have it. I know. I got it. Okay. So this topic um, popped up. I started reading this book. It's called Deathbed Visions, How the Dead Talk to the Dying by Sir William Barrett. It was written right around the turn of the last century. So all of the stories in that book are from the late 1800s into the early 1900s. And I don't know about you, Deb, but I find it fascinating to look at the fact that people throughout millennia have been having near-death experiences. I find it affirming and validating that this is actually a real phenomenon. And I find it fascinating to look at how people in different times of history have viewed this spiritual experience. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, Deb and I thought we would kind of treat this like story time with the teachers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, yes, you you're you're right in that we uh, this this concept of what happens to us right on that edge of death or just beyond and coming back is is common to almost every world culture in through millennia. You're you're right about that. So so tell us a story. Well, one of the things I found interesting in this book is how the dying described the other side, but initially how they described the transfer of their physical body to their spiritual body. Now, if you guys get this book, it's Deathbed Visions, How the Dead Talk to the Dying. It reminded me so much of Visions, Trips, and Crowded Rooms, which is a book I've read about 10 times. I loved that book. One of the things I loved about that book was how well-researched and validated it was. You know, these were doctors and nurses and social workers who were writing these accounts. In this book I'm reading from by Sir William Barrett, he will have a loved one who was by the deathbed 
of their loved one recount a story. But then the author will go to the minister who was by the bed or the rabbi who was by the bed or the doctor who was administering to the patient, and he will back it up again and again and again. And I just I think that's great when authors take the time to do that. He talks about there's different quotes throughout the book about how these people describe what they are seeing. There's one boy, for example, 14, named Charles Dyer, and his mother recounts that he was full of excitement about a door he could see at the corner of his room. And he kept telling his mom, it's opening wider and wider, and when it is open, I shall be going through it, mother. And there's another section of another young person who says, there is mother. Why, mother? Why have you come to see me? No, no, I'm coming to see you. Just wait, mother. I'm almost over. I can jump it. No, I can jump it. Wait. On his face, there was a look of inexpressible happiness, and the way in which he said the words impressed me as I have never been before. So I just wanted to start with those two instances, that it's almost as though an actual physical portal opens up. It's either something we have to jump through or a river we have to cross over or a door we have to walk through. But again and again and again in the research, you will see a tunnel, a door, a river, an opening, a funnel, a vortex. But it's, it makes me think that something very physical and real is happening. Samantha, I'm sorry. Tell me if you know this, and if you don't, it's fine. What was the publication date on this book, and, and was it published in America? Or is the author uh, American? The author is English, and it was reprinted in 2011, and I couldn't find anywhere in here. It just says that Sir William Barrett was a prime mover in the founding of the SPR, the uh, Spiritual, the Society for Psychical Research, which so, okay, he helped that, found in 1882. Thank you. And, and that, that answers a question for me just real quickly, because that language from those children seems so stilted to me. And now it I understand is. why. I understand why now. It's like it's reading this book was like watching Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, if he, if he was a member of the Psychical Research Society at the turn of the 1900s, then that's part of why. And, and in England, the stiltedness of the language. So I get it now. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Okay. Okay, so this is a really cool story I think you'll enjoy. It comes from a woman, uh, well, actually a young girl, um, in San Jose, California. She was 10 years old, and she was dying from, I believe, consumption. And this is 1864. And in the port sent to uh, Sir William Barrett, it says that she lingered on the borderland for three days. She talked very freely about going and sent a message that she was leaving soon. And then she says, okay, so then her minister says, soon you'll be going over the dark river. But Daisy says, it's all a mistake. There is no river. There is no curtain. There is not even a line that separates this life from the other life. And she stretched out her little hands from the bed and with a gesture said, it is here and it is there. I know it is so, for I can see you all and I can see them at the same time. 
We asked her to tell us something of that other world and how it looked to her, but she said, I cannot describe it. It is so different. I could not make you understand. And then one of her neighbors comes to read to her from the New Testament and reads to her, let not your heart be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And Daisy says, mansions, that means houses. I don't see real houses there, but there is what would be places to meet each other in. And she speaks of her sister, Allie, speaks of going to such and such place, but says nothing of houses. You see, perhaps the Testament tells us about mansions, so we will feel we are going to have a home in heaven. And perhaps when I get there, I'll find a home. If I do, the heavenly flowers and trees that I love so much here, for I do see them, and they are more beautiful than anything you could imagine, they will be there. I said to her, Daisy, don't you know the Bible speaks of heaven being a beautiful city? And she said, I do not see a city. A puzzled look came over her face and she said, I don't know. I may have to go there first. So I just found that so interesting that a 10-year-old is going to say, don't you see? It's here. It's there. It's right here at the same time as this place. That's pretty profound for 1864. But you know, as you're talking, Samantha, and I'm envisioning trying to see what she's seeing in some way. One of the things that has always struck me about people's reports of near-death experiences is that they see may be very different than what is once you're there. For example, you and I have certainly traveled and we've gone to a place and at the edge of a town and when we're passing the city limits sign, we see one thing and then a few miles down the road, we see something different. And I just wonder if that notion of a place that we call heaven or the afterlife or the other side or whatever your term might be for it is different as we move through it and maybe different in our varying perspectives of it. You know, some of us love the beach and some of us don't. And so we have different ways of, of seeing depending on who we are because everything I've ever read says we don't really lose our personalities once we cross over. We we really are who we are, you know. I agree. We... I always describe it like visiting America. Um, imagine if you were born and raised in China and you've never been to America and you've never seen American TV and then suddenly you fly to America. Let's say 10 of you go. If one goes to California and one goes to New York City, you're going to come home with really different reports. And then if the other goes to Texas and the third goes to North Dakota, they're going to come back with very different reports. So I think it is like that. Now, she goes on to say, I found this interesting. So she's on this borderland, as they describe, with a foot in both worlds for three days. And she's saying all this spiritual stuff. So you can imagine the whole town is like, let's go see Daisy. So this one neighbor comes to visit and asks if her husband is there. Because Daisy's laying in this bed and she's seeing all these people from her family and from her town. And so this one neighbor goes over and says, hey, where's my husband? And she can't see him. She can't find him. And she asks Allie to go look for him. And Allie is gone trying to find him. So the neighbor says, why can't you see him? And Daisy says, because those who die go into different states or places and do not see each other at all times, but all the good are in the state of the blessed. So then her sister Lulu starts singing a chorus from their Sunday school songbook about angels. And when she finished, Daisy exclaimed, oh, Lulu, is it not strange? We always thought that angels had wings, but it's a mistake. They don't have any. Lulu said, but they must have wings, else how how do they fly down from heaven? Oh, but they don't fly, Daisy answered. They just come. When I think of Allie, she's here. Once I inquired, 
how do you see the angels? And Daisy said, I do not see them all the time. But when I do, the walls go away and I can see ever so far. And you couldn't begin to count the people. Some are near and I know them. Others I've never seen before. One of the people in the room says, you know, why can't I see them? And she says, you can't see them because your spirit eyes are closed. But I can because my body holds only my spirit, as it were, by a thread of life. Okay, so then someone asks, you know, what do they wear in heaven? And so she's talking about this one family member she sees, and she says, there seems to be about him a white, beautiful something, so fine and thin and glistening and oh so white, and yet there is not a fold or a sign of a thread in it, so it cannot be cloth, but makes him look so lovely. Her father then quoted from the psalmist, he is clothed with light as a garment. Oh, yes, that's it, she replied. Then she said, this body of mine is worn out. It is like that old dress of mama's hanging there in the closet. She doesn't wear it anymore, and I won't wear my body anymore because I have a new spiritual body which will take its place. Indeed, I have it now, for it is with my spiritual eyes I see the heavenly world while my body is still here. But you know, today we, we speak of light bodies today on that other side. And here she was in, so long ago talking about that very thing. Yep, which I find so confirming and affirming. Now, are you ready for another story? Sure. This is from Beyond the Light by PMH Atwater. It's filled with wonderful stories. This is about a man named Melon Thomas Benedict. And she says, for many years, he was an accomplished lighting cameraman for feature films on locations outside of Hollywood. What may have been a near-death experience occurred several weeks after Benedict's birth when it was discovered that his bowels had ruptured. Now, when he came back from that experience, as soon as he was big enough to grab hold of crayons, he started what became a compulsive urge to create symbolic renditions of the black-white yin-yang circles of Eastern religious thought. He has no memory of why he drew those particular symbols. He spent his grade school years in a Catholic boarding school in Vermont and was baptized in the Salvation Army as a youngster. He traveled extensively. In 1982, he was diagnosed as having an inoperable cancer. One morning, he awoken knowing he would die the next day, and he did. As the typical heaven-like scenario began to unfold, Benedict recognized what was happening to him as it was happening. The process was familiar to him because he had read many books about near-death phenomenon. Just as he reached the light at the end of the tunnel, he shouted, Stop! This is my death, and I want to think about this. By consciously intervening, Benedict willfully changed his near-death scenario into an exploration of realms beyond imagining and a complete overview of history from the Big Bang to 400 years into the future. Instantly, he was pulled by light away from the tunnel, far away from Earth, past stars and galaxy, past imaginary and physical realities, to a multi-tangled overview of all worlds and all creation, and past even that to the edge of existence where vibrations cease. He saw all wars from their beginnings, race as personality clusters, species operating like cells in a greater whole. By merging into the matrix of his soul, he confronted the no-thing from which all things emerge. He saw planetary energy systems in detail and how human thoughts influence these systems in a simultaneous interplay between past, present, and future. He learned that the Earth is a great cosmic being. He was aware of walking back into his body after deciding to return from his journey. His doctor's assessment was most shocking. The cancer he had once had had completely vanished. 
I just find that story so interesting that he was conscious and said, stop. Wow. And we directed where he wanted his near-death experience to go. And when he came back from that, he said, since this has happened, my fear is gone. My perspective has changed. You know, we are a very young species. The violence that formed the earth is in us too. As the earth is mellowing, so are we as a people. Once pollution flows, we will reach a period of sustained consciousness. We have evolved as from single-cell organisms to complex structures and finally to a global brain. I know now that all the answers to the world's problems are just beneath in the surface in us all. Nothing is unsolvable. Pretty profound. It is profound. And I that's this is the first time I've heard of someone stopping their experience and saying, wait a minute, I want to be in charge here. What's, where, wh- let's go someplace else. You hear of it in lucid dreaming, but it never right. crossed my mind to apply it to a near-death experience. That's pretty bold. I like it. Well, you do hear of it in, in lucid dreaming or in remote viewing, you know, where you can change the course of what you're seeing or where you are. But, but yeah, this is, that's amazing. Okay, you got another story to tell us? I do. This one is very interesting. This took place in 1979 in Virginia. It's a man named Berkeley Carter Mills. He was unloading some compressed cardboard in a shipping facility, I'm imagining. It doesn't really say. But anyway, they they slipped out of control and slammed against him. He remembers a sharp pain, collapsing, being in a black void, and then finding himself floating in a prone position 12 feet above his crumpled body. He saw and heard people running around yelling for an ambulance, saying, don't touch him, give him air. His body went from white to blue, and then there was no breath. The sight filled him with awe. I'm here, my body is there, he's thinking. Not understanding how he could suddenly be airborne, Carter Mills attempted to re-enter his body. And this reminds me of that scene from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when Charlie and his grandfather are up in that tunnel and they have to like swim through the bubbles to get down and they have to burp to get down. That's exactly how he describes it because he says, crawling downward in swim-like strokes, he had almost reached his goal of re-entering his body when a gentle but firm hand tugged his right arm. When he looked up, there were two angels replete with robes, wings, bare feet, and streaming hair. No color, but opaque white, and no particular gender. What's going on, he asked. We've come to take you to God, they answered. After some confusion, the trio left the scene at tremendous speed, leaving the earth behind as if it were a star the size of a pinhead. Their destination was an intensely bright light. He questioned, how come I'm not cold and how come I'm not suffocating this far out in space? An angel replied, this is your spiritual body and these things do not affect it. They took him to a suspended platform and in the center was a being so powerful he thought it was God. The angels bowed and took their places with two others, each with wings outstretched and hands folded in prayer. A male and male and mannerisms and voice, the clean-shaven being, turned out to be Jesus. Carter Mills could not look him in the face as he perceived himself naked and unfit for such an audience. After some coaxing from Jesus, he felt more at ease. I'm going to judge you now, Jesus said. Holy cow, Deb, can you imagine that? Sorry. <laughs> that just struck fear in my heart. Can you imagine? I'm going to judge you now, Samantha. Suddenly, his whole life began to play out, starting at birth. He relived being a tiny spark of light traveling to earth as soon as egg and sperm met and entering his mother's womb. In mere seconds, he had to choose his hair color and eyes out of the genetic material available to him and any genes that might give him the body he would need. 
He watched himself bypass a gene for club-footedness and then watched a soul's perspective as so subdivided. He could hear his parents whenever they spoke and he could feel their emotions. But any knowledge of his past lives soon dissolved. Birth was a shock, awful life, giant people, eyes peering over face masks. His only comfort was his mother. He relived each incident in his life, including killing a mother bird when he was eight. He was so proud of that single shot. Until now, he felt the pain of the bird's three babies that they went through when they starved to death without her. It's not true, he says, that only humans have souls. Insects, animals, plants have souls too. Yes, I still eat meat. For in this plane, species eat each other to survive. But I bless my food, and I say thank for the gift life gives. If I don't, the food sours in my stomach. He was shown that hell is a black blankness without God. Upset, he yelled, how can you sit up here on this throne and allow such misery to happen on earth? Gently, he was told, it's your own fault. I gave you the tools to live by. I gave you free will. I gave you free choice. I allow you to be part of my creation. It is your free will and your free choice that is responsible for starvation, war, and hate. He felt pangs of guilt when he realized we coexist with God. No one is God's servant or slave. Jesus, the angels, the platform, it all disintegrated into a giant sphere of light. Carter Mills no longer needed their shape or image or form to put him at ease. As the sphere grew, it absorbed him and fused him with the ecstasy of unconditional love. Sexual orgasm can't compare, he said. You are so high. Magnify that to infinity. He zoomed back then to his tangled remains as a ball of all-knowing light and crashed into his solar plexus with such force it jolted his body to action. He had been told before leaving the other side, you will not need a hospital, no blood, no operation. God will show you how to heal yourself. Thus, when Carter Mills stood, he promptly walked to his car and drove home, on the way passing the ambulance that had been sent to rescue him. Those present verified that he had been dead for 20 minutes. Wow. So that's something that comes up over and over and over again in these stories, is that they will see a Buddha or or a Jesus, and then once they're comfortable on the other side, that image morphs into light. And it's almost as though we see an image that makes us comfortable. You know, I've often said that I believe that when we die, we go to where we think we're going. We go to our concept of, quote, heaven, because I think that's what's comfortable and feels safe and secure to us. You know, I think my father, who believed in streets paved with gold and, and cherubs playing harp, I think that's where he went. And then when we're comfortable there, then we see what it really is. When he heard the image presenting itself as Jesus say, I will judge you now. But then he saw that he was a part of Jesus, a part of God. I don't think that it's this other being on a throne judging us. I think it is us judging ourselves. Which is why I think we, in so much of the literature about this topic, have transitioned to phrase like life review rather than judgment. I agree. Do you want to hear some not-so-pleasant near-death experiences? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I only course. want to share these because the way PMH Atwater talks about them actually brought me some comfort, and I'll oh, explain okay. why. So this first one is a woman who um, I believe she had just miscarried and was bleeding, and this was in the 1960s. So this is uh, Atwater writing, My encounter took place at St. Alphonsus 
hospital. Oh, no, this is a different one. I'll get to that one next. This one is weird. Okay. My encounter took place at St. Alphonse's Hospital in Boise, Idaho, when I was visiting a woman who had suffered a heart attack. She had just moved to town from Southern California, and because I had previously befriended her, she requested that I come. She was chalk white with fear when I arrived. While clinically dead, she had experienced an incident that went like this. She floated out of her body and into a dark tunnel, then headed through the tunnel toward a bright light ahead. Once the light was reached, she came to view a landscape of barren rolling hills filled to overflowing with nude, zombie-like people standing elbow to elbow, doing nothing but staring straight at her. She was so horrified at what she saw that she started screaming. This snapped her back into her body where she continued screaming until she was sedated. As she relayed her story, she went on to declare death a nightmare and then cursed every church throughout all history for misleading people with rubbish about any kind of heaven. She was inconsolable. As I patiently listened, two other people entered the room, an elderly man and woman, both walking with canes. Each of them had suffered heart failure, too, and had later revived after being declared dead. Both of them relayed substantially the same story as the woman I knew, and they were equally frightened. The three had found out about each other from nurses who had been comparing notes on patients they felt were having strange hallucinations. This was such a coincidence that I instinctively began asking confrontational questions. This is what my questions revealed. None of these three people had the same religion, background, or lifestyle. None had mutual friends or common interests, nor did they have the same doctor in attendance. They had never seen each other before. All had lived long lives of various degrees of hardship and success. Two were still married to their original spouses and had several grown children. The woman from California had been divorced several times and had no children. The only link I could find Besides their heart ailments and the fact that their rooms were on the same hospital floor was this. All three confessed to having hidden within their deepest selves varying types of guilt. This guilt seemed quite painful to them, and the strange vision they experienced while dead only served to deepen that pain. They admitted to me that they met what they most feared in dying, which confirmed and strengthened their already strong belief that their sins would be punished. Before I left, a nurse took me aside and said there was one more experiencer, a man recovering from surgery, who was so shaken he refused to speak with anyone, but kept muttering words like hills and hills of nude people all staring at me. I was not allowed to see him. Why four people within a span of two days at the same hospital had the same basic experience brought on by the same type of ailment is still a mystery to me. I could offer no consolation to any of them. I could only listen and ask questions. The whole thing was so unnerving, I was shaking when I left the hospital. What became of these four people, I do not know. The woman from California I had friended and visited became so irrational and rude that I stopped visiting her. So I just find that very, very interesting. I wonder if negative near-death experiences are not necessarily a form of punishment of hell, but are a self-punishment of the guilt we've carried with us in this lifetime. Self-punishment and fear. Mm-hmm. I think there's obviously fear involved of afraid of what will happen. And they all have heart problems, right? Right. right. You know, I, Which is again, a lack I, of love. Yeah. And again, I go back, as I, as I have in so many of our discussions over the years, about how our spirit works with our body to give us a metaphor for a life lesson we need to learn in terms of ailments. And I think we're certainly seeing that in this situation and you know, and others that we know about. Okay, this is like the most terrifying one I read. This is a woman right. in Connecticut. She was the daughter of Unitarian ministers. She was married, working as an academic administrator, when during the premature delivery of her second child, things went awry. 
I knew the hospital and the world were receding below me very fast. To this day, my mind holds a sharp picture of them down there, though I don't know how I could so clearly see something I didn't look at at the time. I was rocketing through space like an astronaut without a capsule, with immense speed and great distance. A small group of circles appeared ahead of me, some tending toward the left. To the right was just a dark space. The circles were black and white and made a clicking sound as they snapped black to white, white to black. They were jeering and tormenting, not evil exactly, but more mocking. The message in their clicking was, your life never existed. The world never existed. Your family never existed. You were allowed to imagine it. You were allowed to make it up. It was never there. There is nothing here. There was never anything here. That's the joke. It was all a joke. Whose joke? This negative things joke? I don't know. Wow. She commented on the malicious laughter the circles made and on the lengthy argument she gave to prove life did indeed exist. Then the darkness thinned into a never-ending void that went on and on. Six years later, she was leafing through a book and happened upon a page featuring the circles from her near-death experience. She threw the book across the room in one shudder. That was a moment of both terror, terror and corroboration for her as the circles turned out to be the yin-yang symbols of polarity from traditional Eastern teachings. Oh, wow. hmm Wow. Now, here's what um, Atwater says about it. While I have observed in every case I have investigated is that the hellish version of near-death is a confrontation with one's shadow, that aspect of self either repressed or denied. It is a mechanism the psyche uses for healing and for growth. So that's what I wanted to bring up, Deb, not to talk about creepy dark stuff that I love, but the fact that it's not necessarily that there is a hell, but that it's it's what our psyche projects for us in those moments after death of what where we think we're going to go based on who we think we are. I would agree with that. Uh, you know, from certainly from everything that that I've read and that what is what makes sense to me, but I think that because I have to believe that there is a place that we end up in that time between earthly lives where we have time to learn, to grow, to heal, to plan mending fences for the next time, I have to believe in a place filled with positive light. I mean, it's that the no, concept no, no. that we get. I don't mean to interrupt, but I I don't want to be mis representing what I'm trying to say. So what I'm trying to say is that what if all of us go to a dark place after we die and then to a place of light? What if just the way after Christ was crucified on the cross, he descended to hell before ascending to heaven? What if we all do the same and that our vision of hell will be different just as our vision of heaven is different for each of us, but it's based on our psyche. It's based on the seeds we are planting now in this lifetime. I hear you. I guess I just wonder if if it always has to be such that dark place. I just don't think it is for everybody. I don't think it has to be that dark place if we can transcend that duality, that yin-yang while we are here on earth. That's what I mean about the hope of these stories. We can do the work now. Imagine you're planning for a trip, right? Let's say you want to go on a, let's say you want to go visit London and, and you want to get some Meghan Markle and, and Harry memorabilia, right? If you just call up the airlines today and jump on a flight, who knows what the hell you're going to get? You know what I mean? Like you might have a good plane, you might have five connections. When you get there, you might not have a place to stay or things might fall into place. You don't know. But 
what if you spend a year planning that trip and you get a really good travel agent, you save up your money and you double and triple check your flights, your car rentals, your hotel, you make ever sure everything's going to go fine so that when you do get on that plane and take that trip, it does go smoothly. That's what I think these NDEs can teach us. If we can plan and prepare and do the work here while we have the gift of this physical body, we can make that transition so much better. If we can work on our shadow self here in this earthly body, if we can heal our guilt and our fear and our self-hatred and learn to truly embrace ourselves, the good and the bad, the yin and the yang, then when we do make that final transition, it will be a joyous Okay. the choice is with us. I, and I agree with that. I, I do I do agree with that. I guess and part of that for me is that you know, you hear so many people who do have lovely experiences in that near death time. I think folks must there are a lot of folks must be doing it right somehow. Well, what she says I'm trying to find the quote because I underlined it. She says that 75% of near-death experiences are, report a positive experience. However, she doesn't think that the negative ones aren't being reported because a lot of people have shame about it. Mm-hmm. And also, she asked an interviewer, a researcher for NDEs, and basically he said, we don't research these. Here it is. We didn't try to find them because we didn't want to know. That is from... Bruce Grayson, who was head of the International Association for Near-Death Studies in 1990. Wow. Of course, that was a long time ago. Things may have shifted since then. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of truth to that, that people, they don't want to know, so they just don't research it. I think it's a part of the experience, just as I think negative things in life are a part of our experience. The key that I'm trying to say is I think it's important to embrace that now so that we don't have to embrace it over there. Because mm-hmm. I think we'll we'll project that. Like, for example, one of my best friends in high school was a lovely girl, hilarious, funny, great friend. But she hated to be alone. You know, she would never consider showing up at a party by herself. And whenever we had anything bad happen to us in high school, she would always say, at least we're together. And that became like our motto in high school, at least we're together. And every August before we went back to school, we would throw a kiss the summer goodbye party on the Richter Park golf course. And one year we're spread out in this blanket and we're toasting our summer and we're kissing the summer goodbye. And somehow it morphed into this deep spiritual discussion of what hell was, because I think we were comparing our Catholic school to hell. And my friend said, you know, we're, we're all talking about what we think hell looks like. And my friend says, I think hell is being completely alone. I think it's just being in a room where you're completely alone. And we all kind of dropped our champagne glasses and looked around like, holy shit. Because that's a pretty scary thought. But I thought, that's her hell. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's her hell. She hated being alone. And if she can deal with that in this lifetime and be very comfortable being alone and feel very strong and confident and loving in her own soul, she won't have to deal with that shadow side when she crosses over. Do you remember the play by Jean-Paul Sartre called No Exit? Oh, yeah. Remember that? I mean, it was one of the the big hallmark pieces of of the existential literature era. There's a line in the in the play where he's walking down this hallway, having to make a decision about where he's going to spend eternity. And once he opens a door, that's it. And of course, he doesn't know what's behind the door. But he says, as he, the main character, as he's walking down this hallway, hell is other people, and that's one of the famous lines from the play. It's interesting to me as you talk about. Your friend, who for whom hell would be being alone, mm-hmm. I, I think each of us has our own idea 
of hell just as we have our own idea of heaven. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I totally get that. And I think that's just what I'm trying to get across of, of what I am learning is that there's really nothing to fear but fear itself, as the famous quote goes, that really we have so much... This, earth is is a nutrient-rich soil and we can do the work here so that we don't have to do it over there we can we can live our hell and our heaven here and we can get to heaven sooner if we can truly embrace and love ourselves now rather than in retrospect there are some pretty cool outcomes that people experience with ndes that i just jotted down some notes most people who have an nde if not all, according to most of the research, come back with heightened psychic ability, an inability to personalize love, meaning they don't, you know, it's not like this is my spouse, this is my best friend. They see everybody with the same love. An inability to recognize and comprehend rules, limits, and boundaries. They tend to be fearless or overly trusting. They have a difficulty understanding time. Most NDE survivors do not wear watches. They embrace a be here now mentality. They are often labeled spacey. They have a noticeable reduction in fear and worry. They are more patient and forgiving of themselves and others. Difficulty connecting to their physical body. They have a difficulty communicating their deep spiritual experiences. And often this expresses issues in their present relationships. A lot of them will come back in divorce. Females come back more assertive and outspoken. Males tend to come back more gentle and nurturing. They also tend to look younger. People reporting brighter skin, sparkling eyes, a change in their energy levels. They have a heightened sensitivity to light and sound. Their boredom level decreases. Uh, often they have changes that are observable in their brain functioning. Their general health improves. Their body metabolizes substances more quickly and easily. Allergies increase. Blood pressure decreases. They either stop eating red meat or decrease their intake of red meat. They have a new interest in calm, peaceful, and often classical music. They exhibit a preference for open doors and windows, no blinds, shades, or curtains. They need as much light as possible. They have an inability to maintain personal boundaries. They no longer carry secrets. Their story is your story. They have an ability to hear or sense plants and animals, a thirst for spiritual knowledge. They experience increases in synchronicity. They tend to see sparks of light. They are electrically sensitive, so computers and light tend to malfunction around them. They're more creative. They are able to release repressed emotions. Often their appearance changes, and they have a dramatic increase in empathy. Oh, that sounds so wonderful. What I wanted to ask you is, doesn't that sound exactly like a spiritual awakening? It does indeed, and I believe that's indeed what has happened to many of these folks, of course. But what I think, yeah. I think some of us who are going through a spiritual awakening are going through a gentle longer NDE. Do you know what I mean? I do. There are many different kinds of death and we're out of time so we don't really have time to go into that but I think there are a lot of different kinds of deaths that we experience in our lives. All sorts of transitions and changes and, and letting goes in our lives and I think that's what you've just described is something that I think folks who are waking up and then waking up more mm -hmm. are experiencing, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the NDA just allows them to speed it up a little bit. But I think we can all have the benefit of the life review and of this increased sensitivity and connection just by awakening our spiritual connection to all that is. Absolutely true. Thank you, Samantha, for so much of, of doing the work to put this show together this week. I certainly appreciate it. I've learned a lot. 
and I know that our listeners have too. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Have a beautiful week, everybody, and be the light. Take care, folks. We'll be back with you next week.